good morning. Like Josh said, my name is Dave Werns. I have the privilege of serving here at Grace Fellowship Church as the Director of Missions and Mobilization. And once again, I also have the honor of opening up God's Word with you as we continue in our journey through Jonah. Believe it or not, we're almost done with the series. We, this is, it's more like a slow cooker, right? This is crockpot teaching. We're, it's low and slow. We're going we're gonna to make it real juicy. It'll be great. We're in Jonah chapter 4. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. You should be familiar with how to get there by now. And then join with me in praying before we get into the text. We're going to need God's help. We always need his help. Understanding his word and then, and then working it out, massaging it into our lives practically. Join with me asking for his help today. Father, we, we love you. We love that you are a present and communicative God, that you've given us your spirit and your word. We need your help. We need your help to know what you're saying and then to apply it to our lives. Would you give us your grace today, even now, for your own sake and for our own good? Amen. Okay, Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Actually, we're going to start back in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Not all the way, just one verse. One verse in Jonah 3. Follow along. Jonah 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? From the outside, Jonah's mission looks like a complete success. He obeyed God, finally. He preached the word of God, the the warning to the, the whole city of Nineveh. And then miracle of miracles, they didn't kill him. They actually listened. Even more amazing, they repented. They turned away from their evil. They, they believed God's word. And everybody lived. Hallelujah. But you just can't make some people happy. Jonah is angry. Jonah is furious. Right? The literal translation of, of Jonah chapter 1 says exceedingly angry. What it, what it literally means is the good thing that God did, it was evil to Jonah. And he blazed with anger. The good, gracious activities of rescuing a whole city of pagan people was evil in the sight of Jonah, and he blazed with anger. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us, at some point in our lives, have disagreed with God about his management style, right? It's not, it's not like he runs the universe the way that you or I would choose to run it, and rarely does he ask for any input before he makes decisions. But I find it interesting. Jonah's not just upset about the activity God does. He's not just angry about what God did. He's furious about who God is. His anger is directed at God's character. I don't think Jonah's alone in that. Right? You and I, we may not take as strong a stance or as bold an accusation against the Almighty, but that doesn't mean that our hearts are any more in line with God's than Jonah's was. I think we're all in the same boat. And just to be clear, right, I'm going to be using words like idolatry and misplaced worship or misaligned hearts Right? Misplaced affections and allegiances, our loyalties and love, to describe the fact that our hearts are out of alignment with God's. Those are all different ways to describe a failure on our part to live up to the greatest commandment. 
Right? Jesus said that the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And we know that obeying this commandment of loving God with, with everything we have, it's, it's not just behavior management. Right? It requires us to become new kinds of people. We have to fundamentally change what we are. That's, that's the whole point of being reborn. Right, to be born again, it's to become a new kind of person. But that rebirth, that, that born-again mentality, that born-again DNA that God gives us, it's still only the beginning. And we know there's no formula that's going to that's line up our hearts with God's, right? It's a process. We've been talking about that. I mean, I wish, I wish there was a program some system that I could bank on that's going to place my loyalty and my love on, on God appropriately, and I could just set it and forget it, put it on cruise control. But the Bible and history would all agree that the human heart doesn't work that way. Right? I, I tend to agree with John Calvin when he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And that means that there's always going to be something in our lives that's going to challenge God for his rightful place as holding our highest allegiance and our deepest affections. And because of that, the reality of life here on earth is we are always going to be shadowed by struggle. That's for every human being. But it's particularly true for those of us that want to know and love God. I don't mind saying it up front, even if it sounds a little rough when you say it out loud. Our life is always going to be a struggle. I know that most of you are feeling that to some degree for a variety of reasons, but the reason I don't mind saying it up front is because sometimes just stating the obvious can actually be a little bit of a relief. Right? It reminds you that you're not alone in this. Right? You're not the only one thinking or feeling this way. It helps, it helps fight the temptation to start to believe that maybe I'm, maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm the only one experiencing this. God's left me behind, or, or at least I'm so far back that everybody else is experiencing something completely different. I'm the only one struggling. That's a lie. And so my first point today is, it's more of an exhortation from the entire book of Jonah, the whole story. And point number one is, please don't give up. God hasn't given up on Jonah yet. We're almost done with the story. He's not going to abandon you. In fact, God is really, really good at transforming his people to become the kinds of men and women who can live out both commandments, both love God and love people. He's done it for millions of people before. Friends, he can do it for you. I know it feels like it takes forever. I know, I know sometimes it seems as though you're not making any progress at all, but that's normal. It's part of the process. Don't give up. There may not be a formula that's going to automatically line your heart up with God's, and there, there may not be a program that just flushes out all of the idols in your life, right? Like a, a whole 30 for your soul. I wish, but I think what we can see is a recognizable pattern of how God changes hearts to line up with his so that we worship just like Jesus does. There is a pattern. So hang in there. You're probably on the right track. I could say that confidently, not knowing the details of your life, because this brief little snapshot of Jonah's life, right? We're, we're only seeing a few months of this guy's whole life. But this brief little glimpse into his life, it shows us no one is outside the reach of God's merciful, omnipotent hand. No one. Not Jonah, not you. So don't give up, okay? 
All right. Now for the text. So far, so far in this whole series, we've covered several things about worship and about heart change. Like we've seen, why does God change a heart? Right? It's for his own reputation and joy. It's what kinds of people does he change? Right? It's the very messiest people, people like us. We talked last week about specifically what needs to change in a person's heart. Right? The idols that we put uh, in place of God, the worship instead of him, those need to be removed. But for our time today, I think we want to focus on one very specific process that God often uses to realign hearts to be more like his. There's several steps, so I hope you have your outline. Step number one is there's always going to be a challenge for God's throne. It's really a two-part step, right? It begins when you or I make room for something, something in our lives that challenges God for his rightful place of holding our highest affections and our deepest loyalty. And like Pastor Aaron said last week, right, idolatry is not some uh, tribe of people from an Indiana Jones movie dancing around uh, a stone image of a bat somewhere in a cave, right? It's, it's more likely that idolatry is going to look like somebody in this room, right? Maybe, maybe you, maybe probably not you, probably somebody sitting next to you. One of these men and women in here, right, that have given their, their highest loyalty, their, their highest allegiance, to something other than God. Maybe, let's say, the opinions of their peers. That might play out in meaning that this, this man or woman now gives the deciding vote on how their life runs and operates to the people around them, their friends, their neighbors, their family. Right? They're going to decide how many hours this man works, what kind of drive, what kind of car she drives. Right? What kind of posts they put on Instagram? What kind of hard conversations they have with one another? Or perhaps, maybe the same man or woman is, is giving their deepest affections to a creature instead of the created. Right? Maybe their, their heart has been fixed on a person. Maybe their spouse. Maybe their children. Or maybe it's the idea of children. And a spouse. Now, I, I get it. I, I, obviously, we're, we're kind of cherry-picking here. These are some of our favorite uh, idols to, to highlight. But yours may be different. But I think all of them will share three basic categories. Three characteristics that, that are common to all of our idols, whether or not they are listed here. And the first of those characteristics is it's frighteningly easy for us to take a good gift from God and turn it into a small, make-believe God. Small case G, right? Lower case G. And try to replace him with that good gift. It's terrifyingly easy. Number two, it is disproportionately difficult for one of us to self-diagnose. What am I worshiping instead of God? We just don't see it that easily. And the third characteristic that's common to all of our idols, it's both necessary and loving for our good God to expose and then ruin those challengers that are going to try to steal our love and loyalty away from him. Folks, our God is a jealous God. He says so in Deuteronomy 4. And so knowing these common characteristics of all of our idols... It makes a lot of sense that the, the first step in this process will start with our heart creating room for an imposter. But it's going to end with God crushing that idol like a bug. Right? That is step one. Sometimes it happens fast. Sometimes it takes years. In Jonah's case, we actually have no idea when his love for his country or his loyalty to his national identity began to eclipse his commitment to God. We don't know where it started, but we do get to see the exact moment where God exposes the idol and slowly starts to apply pressure until it breaks. Right, that moment shows up in verse 1, chapter 4, right, where it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
right? We know that's the moment that it was exposed because, folks, it's no secret, right? When something that we love and esteem dies, there's pain involved. Our emotions are tied up in those. So the pain that Jonah is experiencing here is actually the failing of his small, rebellious idol. That feeling of frustration, that that disappointment or loss, it's actually necessary for the next step in the process of heart change. Step two in this process of, of changing our hearts is using that emotion, that burst of emotion, that flash of anger or frustration, using that emotion the same way that we would use pain in our physical body or our fever to recognize something is not right here. Something is going on in my body that needs to be addressed. Same way, oftentimes, those flashes, those bursts of strong emotion, they are a symptom of that little G God failing us. And it can serve as an indication of misplaced worship or allegiance. And I get it. Just the way some of us try to ignore the aches and pains, right? We self-medicate a little bit, take some Advil, take an ice pack, or, or maybe just, you know, an a extra energy drink uh, to keep us on our feet. Don't be surprised if it takes a few tries for God to show you what's actually happening in your heart. Our text doesn't say it, but, but I think what we know about Jonah, it would make sense that this is not the first time for Jonah to be displeased with God. Right? If you go back to, to Jonah chapter 1, I bet it wasn't a dispassionate Jonah who packed up his bags and fled down to Joppa. Well, I guess this is I'm just going to uproot my whole life, and this is how we do now. Folks, I bet anything Jonah was just as displeased in chapter 1. As he, as he is in chapter 4. And probably even more so in Jonah chapter 3, where he's given the same assignment a second time. Because he still hates Ninevites, except now he's covered in fish vomit. So Jonah's been displeased this entire time. It just takes a while to recognize it. But that means those bursts of emotion that are happening in your life right now today, those, those flashes of anger or frustration... Right? Or even those seasons of, of despair, of discouragement, of fear, of anger, of anxiety. Friends, those may not just be your personality type. They might not just be your genetics. They may not just be your circumstances creating pressure. They might be a signal that something that you have attached your love and loyalty to, other than God, is starting to buckle under the weight of your misplaced worship. That's heavy, so I'm going to say that again. Consider that the the flashes of strong emotion that are showing up in your life, whether it's anger or frustration or anxiety or fear, maybe those, those bursts are a signal that you have attached your loyalty and your love to something other than God. And now that thing, whatever it is, is starting to buckle under the weight of worship God never intended it to carry. That's hard. Right? And and please, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying our emotions are evil. I'm not saying that strong emotion always leads back to an idol or misplaced worship. I'm not saying that. We know for a fact that Jesus experienced the full spectrum of human emotion, and his heart was never out of alignment for one second. So we can know that feelings are good. But friends, the whole reason that this process of heart change even exists is because none of us are 100% like Jesus yet. Somewhere, somehow, we have to change. 
And I guess, I guess a flip side to this, right, to, just to say that there's another way to look at it, a flip side would be you could comb through your life and try to look for any place where the fruits of the Spirit are absent. Right, Galatians says that the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right, you could... Spend time and energy combing through your life to see where am I missing that fruit. But for me, personally, this is just me, I find it a lot easier to recognize the presence of something than the absence of something. And again, personally, I would much rather celebrate the presence of some fruit, however small it is, any fruit of the Spirit in my life, I think, I want to celebrate that rather than worry, stress, fret about if I have enough of it. I have a little joy, but is it enough joy to qualify? I have, I have some kindness, but, but am I kind enough? I would rather spend my bandwidth on rooting out any idolatry in my life, even if it's just a little bit. Because honestly, who wants to get comfortable with giving, say, 73% of their heart, soul, mind, and strength to God? Right? I love God with 7 out of 10. It's not going to cut it, folks. It's not what we're actually here for. Right? God's not interested in being in the top 10. He's number one. There's only one God. And so, yes, that is one practical reason for, we, for using our, our flashes of emotion, right, to help identify where our hearts are out of alignment with God's. But I think we'll also see a little bit later there's a biblical pattern for tracing our emotions back to our idols. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. I want to say very clearly, not all of our emotions are going to lead back to misplaced affections and allegiances. But enough of them do that it merits investigation. It's worth taking a second look. Put a, leave a finger in Jonah and turn with me to Psalm 139. I'll show you this isn't just my idea. Psalm 139. Start in verse 23. Psalm chapter 139, verse 23, it says, this is David talking. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, this is a man whose heart was after God. And he's inviting God to search it anyway. Not so, he can, not so he can feel terrible and beat himself up, but so that he can change to walk in the way everlasting. I think it's important to note that this search that David is inviting God to do about his life, it's not a militant witch hunt. Friends, you're not a terrorist that's being dragged down to a soundproof cell for questioning. Right? This is a loving father who's carefully investigating one of his children, to see where is that pain coming from and what needs to be fixed. That's why the psalm starts out, look at verse 1, starts out, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. That hand that's being laid on him is a healing physician's hand. It's the hand of a gentle father, not a tyrant. Too often, I think we delay the process of heart change by blaming God for the pain that we feel in our lives 
that results not from his searching. It's not his finger on the bruise of your life that creates that pain, that anger, that frustration, that that disappointment, that anxiety. That's not God's hand on you. That is your idol failing you. Folks, the pain that Jonah is experiencing here, that, that burst, that blazing of anger, that is a result of his idol being exposed as a fraud. It's a symptom of our misplaced worship. The little G God that can't deliver on the promises it made. Turn back with me to Jonah. Because we see here Jonah's anger. In verse 1, there's a trail of breadcrumbs, right, leading back to his idol of nationalism and pride. But what about you? What about you today? Would you be willing to pray with me this Psalm 139 passage? Search me and know me, God. Test my heart. And then look at those bursts of emotion that have been in your life lately to see, is it possible that God could use those frustrations and disappointments and fears to expose a place in your heart that's out of alignment with his? I know, I know it can be scary to make yourself vulnerable, right, to a searching. But folks, let me encourage you. Remember who you're talking to. Right? He's a God that already knows you. He's already seen you from a long way off in your mess, and he ran to you, welcomed you. He loves you. That's the God we're talking about. And that's the God we're talking to. It's that same loving father that showed compassion to a guy like Jonah. Folks, he's going to show it to you, too. And we know that for a fact because Jonah himself quotes God's calling card from Exodus 34. Right? Exodus 34, God says who he is to the world. He's talking to Moses, and, and he says, The Lord passed before him and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God's asked, Who are you? He replies, I am mercy and grace. I don't just do mercy and grace. I am mercy and grace. I don't just do steadfast love. I I am steadfast love. It's who I am. Folks, the only way that I know of to avoid God's steadfast love is to refuse to put down your idols. We saw that in Jonah 2.8. So let's talk to him about our idols. Let's talk to him about our idols. Idols, about our misplaced worship. Folks, that's the, that's the last step in this process of heart change. If you look at verse 2, Jonah, Jonah actually reaches out to God. He prays to God. Well, it's more of an accusation, but followed by an ultimatum. But it's still, you guys get it. This is, this is Jonah engaging God. It's the one thing he gets right. And God comes back with a question. Do you do well to be angry? I think I've said it before, but I absolutely love that our God asks questions to his people. I love that he engages his people with a question. It's such a a gentle way to move people in a position where, where he can point out their misplaced affections and allegiances. But even more than that, it invites a long conversation. It means he wants to continue talking with us. His questions invite us into a longer conversation. And God's been using this method since the beginning, folks. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, he addresses Adam in all of his fear and his shame with a question. Adam, where are you? 
And just one chapter later, he, he engages Cain with, with his frustration. He says, Cain, why has why your countenance changed? Right? He probes into Moses' anxiety and his fear when he gets called to go to Egypt and proclaim against Pharaoh. God asks him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? God even pries into Elijah's depression. Small, still voice quietly asks him, what are you doing here? And here again, Jonah chapter 4, God's asking questions, inviting a conversation. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? I don't know what translation you all are are reading from, but some translations are going to say, do you have a right to be angry? And that has a certain tone, but, but I think that makes sense considering Jonah's reaction to authority, right? His obvious pride. Do you have a right to be angry? However, other places in the Bible that use the same language, the same words, they might frame it in a different way with a slightly different tone. Right? You could just as easily describe this question by saying, Jonah, is it good for you to be so angry? Is it good for you to be angry? And I think considering the complex layering of meaning that we've already seen for the past three chapters, it's easy that God could mean both tones simultaneously. Plus more that I'm, I'm probably missing. I don't actually read the original languages. I think this idea of a long conversation with God about our misplaced worship, though, It makes one of the most compelling cases for consistent time with God in his word, but also in prayer. That consistent time with him through his Bible, through our prayers. Now, to be fair, finding and exposing and and removing our idols, that's not the only reason we read our Bible, right? That's not the only reason we should pray. Jesus did a lot of both. And he's probably the only human to ever exist that didn't need to have his heart aligned. He prayed. He read God's word. But we know for a fact that our hearts are out of alignment. We're not Jesus yet. But if we want to worship the way Jesus worships, we need to change to be more like him. I think we can also agree that our efforts to do it on our own, pretty pathetic at best. I imagine God watching us try to clean up our lives is similar to watching uh, a small child with popsicle hands trying to get clean all by herself. You start with the shirt, because that works. Then maybe the pants, because you need to get the backsides. And then the towel to get the face. And then the water, so you can spray it all over the kitchen. And then hugs. Can you tell I have a one-year-old? So... We laugh a little bit, but I I think to a degree, that's how we approach our time with God. Both in in the Word, our time in Scripture, and our time praying. It's as if we sort of believe that that there's something magical about the events themselves. The wiping and the water. As if somehow, if we just do the right things in the right order, long enough, hard enough, something magical will happen will be changed. Folks, at best, that's mysticism. At worst, that's legalism. Neither of those is going to help you fix your allegiances and your affections on God. God's grace is free, and it is limitless. But that doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want with it however we see fit to use it. We don't get to just sprinkle God's grace on like fairy dust, think some happy thoughts, and then expect our heart to magically change, fly off to Neverland. But neither do we get to pretend that we're in some kind of a cosmic relay race where God gets us going right out the blocks and then hands a baton, and now, now it's up to us. Everybody's watching. Don't let him down. 
But we vacillate between the two. Folks, God's grace is free. Right? His power and his kindness at work on our behalf, it is absolutely available and is unlimited. But it's also purposeful. His power is purposeful. How exactly do you think Jesus resisted temptation during his life on earth? What do you think was happening in the garden as he submitted himself to the will of his father, sweating great drops of blood? Right? How was he able to lay down his life for us, defeating death on its own turf, and then pick up his own life back again on his own terms? Right? What was giving him the ability to do that? Folks, that is the grace of God that is available to us. Today, to do that same process, to say no to temptation, right? To submit our will to the Father, even though it is a piece of a death, a death of, of part of us that's still at war with God. But we're trusting that he, just like he brought Jesus back, will bring us back to a new kind of life, right? That's, that's the whole picture of baptism, Buried with him in his death. That is a real death, folks. These idols die hard. But we are raised back up to new life, to walk in newness of life with him. That's what grace is for. Folks, if, if the kind of vocabulary that we're using here is new to you, if this, if this thinking is different than what you're used to, please, please, please find me after the service. Talk to one of the campus pastors. Right, if you're listening online, email the church office. We want to clarify. Right, if you have questions about this, this is not the kind of conversation to put off till another day. Right, let's get some answers here. We'd love to help you sort out the implications of a new life in Christ. But for those of you that have been around a while, right, if this is familiar to you, what I'm about to say might be old news. Maybe you've already thought this way for decades. But I'm going to say it anyway. Both your time in the Scriptures and your time in communication with God through prayer must have intentionality. Because you already have expectations. It must have intentionality because you already have expectations. I don't know if they're the right ones. But what we intend, right, our purpose here, and what we expect, right, what, what do we think is going to happen? Both of those matter a lot when we meet with God. Your Bible isn't just some motivational calendar, that's going to give you a little shot in the arm, help you keep a positive attitude today. <laughs> but we also can't treat it like a magazine, right? Like a, a news app where we just get little tidbits of information, maybe a provocative new idea or perspective, chew on a little bit, talk around the water cooler. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Joint and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Right? The Holman translation says it's, it's able to judge the ideas and the thoughts of our heart. Isn't that what we want him to do? Isn't that what we were just asking him to do? In Psalm 139, judge the ideas and thoughts of our heart. So let's show up anticipating that he's going to do that. Friends, let me ask you bluntly. When you open your Bible to read God's word, what exactly do you expect is going to happen? When you read the Bible, are you expecting him to change the way you think? The way you feel? Because apparently God does. That's his expectation. But he doesn't expect you to do it alone. Friends, we have the Holy Spirit. It helps us discern his word. More importantly, it helps us carry our end of the conversation. 
right? Like we read in the mor- this morning in, in the worship service. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us with our weakness, right? We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Friends, when I say that God is inviting us into a long conversation, I'm not talking about hours at a time praying and reading. I'm not talking about weeks, long retreat. Those are, those are sweet, special times when they happen. But I'm like you, right? I work a full-time job, and I have a one-year-old. And so that means that the only thing I get to do for hours on end is answer emails and read Llama Llama Red Pajama. <laughs> Whimper softly for his mama. Join in if you know it. I know, I know many of you lead more hectic lives than I do. Okay, and, and God gives grace in the seasons. He, he can make it so we are faithful in every season. And so when I say it's a long conversation, I'm talking about consistently bringing our intentions and our expectations back to the same thing over and over again. Day after day, as often as we can, for as long as it takes. Talking to God about our misplaced love and loyalty, and then opening up his word, expecting, anticipating that he's going to change the way we think and the way we feel. I know we all have different capacities, but again, at the risk of being blunt, friends, if you're not at least interested in having your heart line up with God's so that you can worship the way Jesus worships? What exactly are you doing here? So the volume of reading, how often you do it, how long you read, the volume of prayer, how, how often you do it, how long it takes, that's not the issue. It's consistency. It's focus. Imagine, imagine a stream of water that's slowly cutting its way through layers of rock. Right? Or, or a tiny drop in a cave that starts forming a, a giant stalactite. It takes time. That's our last point today. This process that we see, the long conversation of heart change, takes time. We don't really know how long it took for Jonah to get from chapter 1 to chapter 4. It certainly wasn't days. Maybe months, could be years. Right, but the conversation that he starts in chapter 4, it goes beyond the end of the book. So we don't even know how long it continued. But to close our time, I want to give you just a short story. Just a really quick story that I, I think is going to help tie some of these points together. It's still a little fresh, so I'm going to use my notes. In April 2019, sorry. In April 2019, after about seven years of concentrated effort, my wife, Andrea, and I, along with the elders here at Grace Fellowship, we made a decision to put a hard stop on my family's plans to move to another country. Seven years of hard work, but, but really the focus of my entire adult life. So naturally, I was sad. But I was also pretty busy. Um, and so God and I talked briefly about that change, and then I got back to work. And if you fast forward about 18 months, uh, in the fall of 2020, it's just this past year, Andrea and I were getting to know our, our new daughter, Pippa, for a few months, and I'm starting to notice these moments, right? these flashes, maybe, maybe a few seconds, maybe a minute at most, of just intense anger. I'm not typically a guy that, that experiences frequent emotional outbursts. I, I like to schedule them, maybe quarterly. <laughs> Give me time to you know, plan the, the week. And so it was a little confusing to have these these. Sudden, unexpected bursts 
of an emotion I'm not really used to. I, I just chalked it up to a combination of lack of sleep and pandemic stress. Um, just adjusting to a new baby, right? But as some weeks go by and, and the anger moments are getting more frequent, happening a little more consistently and lasting long. They're more like anger episodes now, I suppose. Lasting maybe for hours at a time. And, and I still have no idea why it's happening. But, but I'm recognizing that it's affecting, it's impacting how I interact with Andrea and with Pippa. And so I'm starting to talk to God more consistently about it. And, and I conclude this is probably just selfishness. Right? This is, I'm having to die to self in new ways. We're, we're, we're working from home and in close quarters and we have a new baby. Okay, selfishness. It's fighting tooth and nail against the normal uh, life of a parent. Okay, I get it. Selfishness, fine. I know how to deal with selfishness, right? We're going we're gonna to ask for God's grace. We look for opportunities to serve. We, we focus on gratitude. No problem. I've got this. <laughs> no good. Things just keep getting worse. At this point, I'm, I'm now waking up angry. Right? It's not even episodes. It's, it's really more of a lifestyle. And, and now I'm getting angry that I'm still getting angry. It's just a cycle, right? So, and those flashes, those bursts, those moments that used to just be the anger, they've ratcheted up and now it's full-blown rage. Right? I, I, I'm getting absolutely enraged. I just want to break something. And that's alarming because something's obviously wrong and I have no idea what. But things are getting progressively worse and, and all I can think about are these horror stories of these new dads that just snap, right? And they do something to their kid. So I'm talking to the guys at community group, asking for prayer. I'm talking to God. I'm asking for help. Nothing changes. And then one day in January, this January, I'm just doing my normal reading, normal everyday reading. And I get to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. And it says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And you may notice this has nothing to do with anger or selfishness or rage or parenting but it's significant because 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, they were foundational passages for Andrea and I to develop a life plan for how we were going to do ministry and life in another culture. And as I was reading that verse, it's like bumping into an already deep bruise, if you guys have felt that, or biting down on a sore tooth, right? Just that... that survival instinct flash of pain. And I was like, ah, that's what I've been feeling for the past few months. And things started to click a little bit. Right? I was still angry at God for changing my plans without my permission. And he was exposing in my life some misplaced loyalties that I hadn't yet recognized. And so we talked about it. In fact, for the next few weeks, that was like all we talked about. Seems like that was the only conversation he wanted to have. Right? Whether it was his time together in our word or, or in prayer, right? or whether it was sermons or conversations with other believers, feels like that was the only topic we could cover. And, and I tried to consistently work my way through the book of Proverbs, just kind of a, as a life habit for, for my own sake and now for my daughter. But folks, you'd be surprised. Well, maybe you would. I was surprised at how often planning shows up in the book of Proverbs. It's like every third verse talks about God's plans versus mine. So whether it was Proverbs or Ephesians or Genesis or Isaiah or talking to guys in community group or, or leading the, the personal ministry training program or reading C.S. Lewis or the Tiny Truths Bible storybook, right? God was having this long conversation about basically the same thing he's talking to Jonah about. So, so you can see why this text kind of resonates. God's asking, Dave, do you do well to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? 
And here's the thing, it's been, it's been almost three years, probably a little over three years since we made that decision to stay in Kentucky. Right? That's, that's a long conversation. And we've talked about some things other than that in, in between, but we've concluded so far that I'm not okay with him changing my plans because to some degree I still believe that my worth is wrapped up in what I can do for him, what I can accomplish for him. And so it turns out that my loyalty oftentimes lies more with my own plans of what I'm going to do for God than worshiping him for what he's already done for me. It sounds pretty gross to say it out loud. Um, and sometimes it can be exhausting just to talk about the same thing over and over again. But it's also really satisfying to see good, hard work put at something that's going to last. Because, folks, he's changing my heart. I'm a different kind of person now than I was in 2019, largely because of this process that he's been taking me through. And these changes are going to last for millions of years. I'm becoming the kind of person that we want to be for eternity. So my question is, what about you? Are you willing to pray? Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O God. Are you willing to let him ask you the question, do you do well? To feel the way you feel? And are you willing to make plans for a consistent, deliberate conversation about misplaced worship? If you're nodding along to these questions, I've got, I've got one very simple next step. Right, whether you're brand new to the process, you're just figuring out who Jesus is, or you've been doing this process for decades, you're, you're a veteran. I have one simple next step that we can all take. Would you commit to sharing your story? Just like I did. Just like Jonah did. Would you commit to sharing your story of what God's doing in your life to align your heart to his as it's unfolding? Not waiting until you got it all wrapped up with a bow. As it's unfolding. Folks, that's the way God encourages and builds up our body in love. As we share in the fellowship of our stories. And guess what? Community group's kicking off in a couple weeks. It's the perfect place. It's the exact right environment to share those kinds of stories. Who knows? Maybe God will do something amazing in our church this fall using stories just like yours. Would you join me in praying, asking him to do that? Father God, we love you. We love that you don't give up on people. We love that you are changing your people. Would you give us the grace, the power to tell our stories in the midst of the pain and the struggle? And would you use those stories to build up your church? Amen.